Okay, well, thanks for uh, braving the coronavirus to come hear me talk about robots. Um, <clears throat> my name is Damien, um, one of the co-founders. I'm the CEO of Agility Robotics. Uh, we're based in Albany, Oregon, uh, which is about an hour south of Portland. And I physically, uh, along with our business development unit, are based in Pittsburgh, uh, which for those of you who followed what's happened in Pittsburgh over the last 10 years, is uh, one of the hotbeds of robotics in the US. And I'll be talking today about how we approach the first and last mile problem, uh, and about the last mile uh, specifically, because that's where we differentiate from a lot of the competition. It's no surprise at a show like Modex uh, to make the observation that most parts of the logistics chain are really rapidly automating. And so we have great ways of storing lots of stuff, uh, going the middle mile, and going really long distances between continents. And if you look at the labor cost, say, of flying a, a 747, uh, say, from uh, Atlanta to Tokyo, uh, labor cost of that is far less on a per piece uh, basis than the cost of carrying a McDonald's order uh, from the corner of McDonald's down to your office building. So why is that? And it's because you can do aggregation and automation at scale when you have very large uh, workloads, but it's much harder at small workloads. This gets to a hopefully not super contentious or profound observation that the human world really isn't designed for robots. And this is often incorrectly phrased as an optimality question. Uh, in other words, the question is, why are you building robots that have two legs? Is that optimal? And it's, it's funny because we don't ask the same question about pants. Uh, you're building pants that have two legs. Is that optimal? Well, no, it's just if you want to sell pants and you're selling them to people who have two legs, it's the choice that you make. So if your sidewalks look like this and your front yards look like this, it's not a question of optimality. Uh, you have to climb the stairs because the stairs exist. You have to go down those sidewalks because the sidewalks happen to exist. Uh, and this is our built environment. We built it for us. Uh, and so the machines that are operating in that have to adapt. Now, in some cases, you can get very clever with your wheeled solutions where there are wheeled platforms that can negotiate uh, sidewalks that look like that, but there are very few non-legged platforms that could uh, approach the house that's shown on the right. Uh, and this was actually our, our co-founder's house during grad school, so it's not an abstract example. Similar arguments apply to on-premises automation. So much of what you see at, uh, at Modex here is really under the upper right assumption, which is that when you're building out new infrastructure or when you're doing a, a remodel on an existing facility, that you can get high throughput uh, by virtue of being able to design the automation into the environment. Uh, so a great example uh, of robots doing this kind of work were uh, the early Kiva system robots you know, that were rolled out famously into the Amazon facilities and then uh, acquired by Amazon ultimately. Where when you're designing from a, a clean sheet, you can totally imagine any, any circumstance that you want from an automation perspective. But that's not actually how the bulk of the world exists. The bulk of the world exists with older facilities, you know, many of which were designed before any automation, much less modern automation, and where you have to work with existing, say, line sort tasks, like shown here, uh, where it would be very difficult to go through and, say, bolt down a purpose-built solution to the floor in a way that's going to actually capture the full workspace of the task. And this is the core of why we're doing legs. Again, we, we don't do legs because it's optimal. We don't do legs because we think legs are cool. It's that we happen to build our environment for us. And so machines that have about the same physical capabilities uh, as us uh, are 
what you would want for that situation. Now, crucially, that's not reflected as in a solution that's appropriate for all things. So anything that we don't currently use people for, there are almost certainly better ways of doing it. So we're not envisioning some sort of dystopian future where there's 100,000 legged robots running down the street carrying individual packages. We don't do that with people, so there'd be no reason to do that task with a robot. Uh, with the work that we've been doing uh, publicly with Ford Motor Company over the last year, we've been looking at what can you do if you have an autonomous fleet uh, that has slack capacity in it. And so you would use a autonomous vehicle to solve the middle of that mile. Uh, so let's say you have a robot taxi, which is uh, being rolled out for autonomous uh, taxi service. When you're in fleet off times in the middle of the night, not at rush hour, uh, you can use that same vehicle with an autonomous uh, legged robot, both to load and unload the vehicle. For the bulk of the distance that you're traveling, those miles are still best captured by uh, aggregation of packages and, uh, and long distance travel on the existing road structure. But for things like sidewalks and stairs, you need a way to negotiate those if you're trying to preserve the same delivery experience people are used to. And legs are, uh, again, if not optimal, certainly the best match that we have for those tasks. Most importantly, we're looking at this as an infrastructure argument. Do you want to go through and wholesale replace infrastructure or don't you? Um, a lot of conversations about the drone uh, safety profile with respect to outdoor UAV operation has been focused on the infrastructure question. How do you adapt the national airspace so that if you have thousands or millions of drones flying around, uh, you maintain the same safety profile that we've been accustomed to for the last uh, 100 years of air travel? Uh, that's an infrastructure question. We're trying to avoid that discussion by recycling all the infrastructure that we have. So the robots don't weigh any more than a person does. They're not uh, on sidewalks at the density that you would require if they were doing the entirety of the last mile. Uh, that's why we refer to it as the last 50 feet. So to expand on that, why wide legs plus vehicles? Uh, because there certainly are product offerings out there that uh, attempt to do all of the last mile uh, independently. So Starship uh, has done a good job on college campuses. Uh, Neuro, uh, our friends uh, from grad school that started Neuro, uh, have been doing fresh food delivery um, publicly with Kroger. Uh, they have some other partners that they uh, haven't announced yet. Uh, and their model is, well, if it's a fresh food offering, you're gonna be going down to meet the vehicle anyway because you have to be home uh, you're getting a perishable product by definition, so there's no penalty for making the consumer go down and do the work of the unload. But if you're looking at, at, at things where you're delivering non-perishables, uh, you end up in the situation that Amazon found themselves in with the Prime Air offering or with uh, the, the FedEx robot, where you really have to have the consumer acceptance of, in the case of Prime Air, uh, dropping the package in your backyard. Well, in Pittsburgh, at least half of the year, anything that's dropped in my backyard is gonna be wet or frozen by the end of the day. Uh, and for uh, an offering that is keeping the package contained, it still requires you to go down and meet the, uh, the vehicle at the point of delivery. What Starship has done to get around that is deploy on college campuses uh, where there's already an existing expectation that for things like convenience store runs, that they're okay for the low cost of the delivery to go down and meet the unit. But that's not the bulk of the package flow in the United States. Expanding beyond logistics for a second, um, there are many jobs that decompose down to a movement task and then some sort of non-movement task. So we would parameterize logistics as being a, a move and carry kind of operation. A security task is a move and inspect, taking photographs, taking LIDAR data, scans, and so on. Or telepresence is, is moving and interacting. 
So the feature of mobility is a common core requirement. It's not something that's unique to logistics, although the market here happens to be quite large. At the end of the day then, we view uh, the mobility as really being an enabling technology the same way that uh, mobile phones are. So you can think of there being a application ecosystem that's developed around your iPhone or your Android phone over the last you know, 11 years that these products have been available commercially where you really have a base set of capabilities on the hardware side, a GPS, a screen, and so on. And then a diversity of apps on the front end that differentiate between that. So your, your Google Maps is not really different than Uber or Lyft or a video game. It's the same underlying hardware. It's differentiated on the front end only by software application. So we, we really view the robots being the same way. So a task on premises only differs from a task last mile by virtue of the software that's running. It's the same hardware, which means you can increase the duty cycle of the, uh, of the robot. And so although there are certainly single purpose consumer electronics devices that were designed to do one job and do it well, uh, an example be, would be say the Nintendo Switch versus your iPhone, most people still play mobile games on their phone. They don't go out and buy mobile gaming platforms. And the argument is there, you have a convergence around a single hardware platform that reduces the cost, it increases the, the utility of the device to you, and we're making the same argument with the robot. This might not be as fast as purpose-built automation for an on-premises task, but I can hopefully guarantee that we're the only robot that's going to uh, both do a line sortation task and then also go off-premises to do the last mile delivery uh, with the same hardware. So the way that we fragment this is, again, if, if any of you are software developers, we think of this being broken up sort of the same way again as the mobile phones. So you have a common hardware platform, you have the operating system or the API layer that gives you capabilities saying, uh, I wanna tell the robot how to pick something up. So something could be a cup of water, something could be a box that weighs 50 pounds. That's an abstract operating system level capability. But then on the, on the top layer is the what do you do with it question. And that really starts to differentiate between the specifics of an on-premises task, a uh, security task, a last mile task, and so on. And so why does this matter? Ultimately, it means that if you invest in a broad general purpose platform, that new jobs or new tasks that the robot learns how to do form the core of a, a mobility operating system and those allow the robot to expand over time. Uh, and this is different than how we think about most technology, but it's very similar to what you think about as your phone. So it's not a surprise, you know, if Apple does a software update that suddenly this does virtual reality product demos, which apparently this started doing about a year ago. Uh, and over time, we've gotten conditioned that many of the products that we own are not the same on day thousand as day one, but that's not how we tend to approach automation. Typically automation doesn't change over time almost by design. Uh, and we're suggesting that we need to get away with that, or uh, get away from that in the future. So I'll play a video here. This was um, a project that we did with Ford uh, last May, uh, combining uh, their vehicle autonomy with uh, an earlier prototype of our digit robot. This is in a last mile application. Uh, and then I'll play another video in a little bit that shows uh, some on-premises stuff.
So that, uh, that's our robot Digit. Uh, that's an earlier prototype of it. That's on the static display over in our booth. You can see it after the talk. And then we also have the, the newer version here as well. Um, that again shows off sort of the theoretical combination of how you would uh, combine an, an autonomous vehicle, in this case for transit van uh, that would be used for passenger service with a robot for completing the last mile. Um, people always want to know how much of that was CG. Uh, the dotted line on the ground was CG. The rest was real stuff. All right. Uh, we have an, another partnership that we have not announced, uh, and this is on the on-premises side of things. So this is a different video, and this is using our newer hardware, uh, the second pre-production version of Digit. And this is a very different vision. So we showed outdoor operations, but we want to make the point that the same, same class of tasks can be done indoors. Uh, so this is showing a, a receiving station task where uh, it's actually in our, our office in Oregon on the shipping and receiving desk, receiving a package, and then carrying it back to a workstation. So part of the takeaway with that is it's the same core platform doing both tasks. Uh, although you might be able to automate the indoor solution, say with a wheeled platform that had uh, grippers mounted up on it, that's not going to also then go outdoors and deliver it. And that's really from a, an ROI perspective. Uh, we can work with the existing infrastructure, and you can be doing multiple jobs. How that would compare to sort of existing automation solutions, when you think about the rollout of autonomous vehicles, one of the key value adds there that's not often talked about is that you don't have to go entirely fleet level autonomous at the beginning. All of those vehicles are working with the exi existing infrastructure. There's no air traffic control that is required to have uh, one AV out in testing. And our robot is a lot more like that than it is like, say, a purpose-built warehouse solution. Again, if you're shooting entirely for throughput and you have a greenfield construction project, by all means, do it this way. It's when you're really focused on dual-use technology or when you're working with retrofitting uh, that it becomes important to have the flexibility to cross through multiple environments. In terms of what the robot can see, so we have a LiDAR up top and then four Intel RealSense cameras. On the production version of Digit, there's an additional color camera uh, right about here on its chest that's forward-looking for giving uh, some perspective. Uh, on the bottom left is a, vi a little video clip showing the LiDAR data of our office where the robot's localizing. 
Uh, so an example would be what it would see during the, uh, the walk that it was taking uh, earlier. That was how the robot was seeing the office during that. And so this localizes very much like any other mobile robot. There's nothing exotic about the vision solutions that we're using here. Talk a little bit about the technology here. Uh, this has been in, in process for quite a while. So the Mabel robot uh, was one of the first actual bipeds that came out of this technology process, which actually goes back to about 2001. We licensed this technology from Oregon State University, and that's why we're in Albany, uh, because we're in close proximity to the university. And the work here goes back to Carnegie Mellon and uh, University of Michigan back in the early 2000s. So there's really quite a pedigree here of robots that have de been developed over the last almost 20 years, uh, culminating in the work in blue, which is highlighted, which is uh, what the company has been working on for the last four years since we got started. Uh, Digit's really the first product that we're focused on for non-research applications. Uh, we did sell the Cassie robot in limited volume. That was primarily for the R&D market. Uh, and really, the reason why we're here now with the Digit series is that we're making that transition away from a specialty purpose R&D focus to a more the robot's doing a job capturing ROI for a customer. Two quick clips here. I'll play these side by side so you can catch the comparison on it. On the left is video of a bird running down a ramp. The sort of saggy white bit in the middle is tissue paper that's over top of a force plate. So the bird uh, was trained to run down this uh, paper runway. And then the grad students, being grad students at one point, took the runway away, put tissue paper there, and there's a step down that the, uh, that the uh, bird doesn't know exists. The reason why that's interesting is that the reaction time of the nerves and the brain and the bird don't explain why the bird doesn't fall, which you'll see in a second. It's the actual physics of the leg design and the built-in stability of the gait. And you can think about this as uh, if you uh, have kids, uh, kids will pre frequently like dump the Legos out of the bucket, put the bucket over their head, and then run around the house. Uh, why that's interesting is that means that they are not using vision to have a robust gait. And if they're running and they stumble over stuff on the ground, they can recover without any knowledge or map of the world, which is also what the bird's doing here. And capturing that physics model in hardware is in a nutshell the big differentiator that we have with Digit versus other robot solutions. So in this case, the vision system on the right with Digit is turned off. It is not aware that these boards exist, but it's able to react and stay upright very much like the bird does on the left. So you might say, why is that useful? That's useful because OSHA exists and our workplaces very rarely look like nice, smooth, concrete floors. In a real work environment, stuff lands on the ground and if you're relying on in, uh, perfect uh, environmental knowledge to actually be able to stay upright and to do useful work, much less if you're going outside into an uncontrolled environment, then you really have to have the ability to have imperfect knowledge of the world but still be able to do your job. Here's another example with a little bit more complexity. Uh, you know, this is ground that's shifting in addition to the, the fact that the height variations are unknown.
That's actually hard for a person to do. I tried it, and stepping on rigid, movable things over top of a springy surface is actually uh, surprising. Here we're showing the general class of task, also extends to steps. And then also working with and around people is a, a concern. So we're not uh, positioning the robot as operating in isolation. Uh, this is going to be working alongside human coworkers who have better things to do with their time. So in this case, we're saying you'd be able to take a bump, uh, have someone accidentally walk into you because they're not paying attention, and you want to stay upright and safe without falling over. The other non-obvious thing for this, too, is that uh, you know, people tend to get pretty attached to the robot. Uh, one of the things that we just showed there is the ability to recover with a push-up. Uh, and this happens with human coworkers as well. If you see you know, a forklift heading for someone, you need to be able to grab them and move them out of the way without taking the time to go through some sort of command process. And that's really what we're trying to get uh, working with, with our robots that is, is being shown here is the ability to interact with it the same way you would with a coworker with nonverbal communication, you know, positioning the robot, feeling comfortable nudging it out of the way if you're trying to you know, push past somebody in an aisle. You can't rely on a command controller or something like that or going through an AI network to really uh, accomplish that task. All right, I wanted to do a, li a little bit of science conversation here just because um, you know, hopefully you find this interesting. Um, and this really breaks up our control process into a number of discrete nuggets uh, that explain why we have the capabilities that we do. Much of the robot world lives entirely in this space. So uh, if you're familiar with the term hard real-time control or a real-time operating system, that's typically right here. That's at the couple kilohertz kind of rate uh, where you have an operating system like embedded limit, uh, Linux or a, a you know, real-time operating system uh, living in classical controls land. So you have a model, uh, you know, controls language is the plant model, uh, and you have a you know, system identification of it, and then a control law that just defines how the movement's occurring. At that point, it really requires that you have this fast updating understanding of what the world is, a fast updating understanding of where the robot is, and how the two interact with each other. And that's relatively straightforward with conventional classic automation. So if you go look at uh, you know, any modern high-speed robot manufacturer, Fanuc being a great example, the reason why you can pull off amazing performance is because you have a completely characterized system. And you can get vastly in excess of human performance with this kind of model precisely because the system is so well understood. There's two core problems with this that show up in this model, though which is, first, that the actual dynamics of the system have, in effect, infinite bandwidth. Uh, a great way to think about this is imagine you have a, a granite countertop and a uh, glass marble, and you drop the glass marble and it falls on the granite countertop. Uh, those are both very hard surfaces, and the instantaneous contact is going to occur and finish way faster than two kilohertz. You know, you're talking probably down in the uh, microsecond level for the instantaneous contact for instantaneously rigid systems. So this is why you have to be careful with industrial robot arms, even when they have force sensors on them, because the actual dynamics of the impact, you're going to get a broken bone well before most non-compliant robot systems are, are actually aware of and able to do anything about that contact. 
And that really is the differentiation between, say, the cobot model of control versus classical controls. Uh, on the cobot model, you're doing force control. You're not trying to maintain a constant trajectory, and you are worried about the force. Whereas with the classical control, you're more worried about the position than you are with the uh, the contact forces. So that's you know the limit on the one side is the, the the dynamics occur at something of an infinite bandwidth. On the other end, you have to contend with the fact that the input from a human operator is likely to be at best say a command or two a second. Uh, if you're in the professional video game world. I mean, obviously, all bets are off the table. But for the average person, you're not going to see and react to an input, uh, you know, much better than about 300 to 400 milliseconds uh, from the research from the, the, the uh, driving community. So, you know, we, we have to account for the fact that you can't, on the one hand, deal with these instantaneous impacts, but on the other hand, that you're not likely to be saved by high-level AI that's tuned to behave approximately like a person. And so that's why it's hierarchical. So in our case, the uh, little black bars on the back part of digit's legs are physical springs. As soon as you have a spring in series with something, the impact goes away. It is not possible to instantaneously change the force through a spring because you have the spring taking that hit for you. So we remove the, the infinity by adding a spring. Uh, we still do classical controls. So when you're trying to hold something, it is important that you have a notion of how to do the position control. But then there's a you know some relaxation of that uh, where we have a continuously updated plan and then the lower level sort of AI at the task level. So it's the combination of the control hierarchy from the super, super physics end of the world all the way up to the super AI end. And that's really where things get interesting to think about the robot performing a task for you that allows us to specify that task up at the slow reactive uh, end of the spectrum as opposed to having to deal with it with the hyper accurate physics model. Um, I'm sure you'll have questions. I have plenty of time built into this. so. If any of that was confusing, feel free to ask about it at the end. So what are we doing on the, the AI end of things? Um, we haven't shown this publicly much. I think this might be actually the first time that we've shown this. Uh, we've done some work on reinforcement learning, which is a bit of a buzzword in the AI community right now. Uh, but it allows you to express, express a process in a way that the computer can improve on some sort of seed. So in this case, this is our earlier robot, Cassie. Uh, that was given sort of a approximate model of how to uh, run and then told to refine it using reinforcement learning. And this is an interesting clip uh, because it's, we think, the first uh, bipedal robot to actively balance and run with an aerial phase under a learned policy. Now, obviously, there's no job uh, that I can think of uh, that requires the robot be able to do this, uh, but the same framework can be used uh, to perform much more useful tasks. So in the context of a workplace environment, uh, you can express a general model for getting the task done, expose that to the learned policy controller, and then let the, uh, the, the learned uh, controller actually fill in the details. So again, in this case, we did not explicitly program the robot to run. It was able to learn that on its own. This was on a treadmill. One of the nice things with a suitably tuned RL policy is that you can then change this, change the operating environment entirely. So it was on a relatively non-compliant indoor treadmill, and here's the same policy controlling the robot outdoors on a football field. Uh, showing yeah, the transition from a sort of a speed walking gait all the way up to a run and then decelerating back down to a speed walk. So again, to make the point, what's this good for for logistics? Probably not a lot. Uh, it's the framework that's useful. Uh, and you know, as, again, as far as I know, this is the, the first time that
particularly as we start to expand the task requirement for robot, you don't want to have to go through and write new code every time you change what the robot's doing. That's not useful to the customer, and it's not, that's a, obviously a, a relatively large burden on us. So we have the flexibility with the, with the learn policy framework to actually say, here's a general way that you would get a class of tasks done, pick something up, okay, go off, spend some time in simulation, uh, refining that, and then come back and show us, uh, Mr. Robot, when the, uh, when the task is refined. And that's what we're doing here, is uh, taking the final leap and saying, okay, that was one robot uh, refining the process. What can we do if we have a simulation that actually maps the behaviors of the robot onto a controller in an accurate enough way that you can train entirely in sim uh, for hundreds of thousands of hours, uh, you know, down in this case, I think about 32 hours of real-time operation uh, across a giant population of robots who are all practicing a task. Uh, in this case, this is the Digit robot over on our, in our booth, um, and we asked Digit to learn how to jump. Uh, we've never programmed it to do that, and as you'll see at the beginning here, some of the early results were, um, let's say, somewhat less than successful. And over the you know many, many hundreds of hours of, of hundreds of thousands of virtual hours, we're able to refine the process down such that with, when you get to the end state, it's actually a successful jump. And crucially, this will work on the real hardware. Uh, so we have a good enough match between the simulated environment and the virtual environment that you can take a policy that you learn in sim uh, and deploy it on the hardware with a reasonable expectation that you're gonna have a successful outcome. And this changes the game pretty significantly. What this means is that you can build a model of your task and your environment before making a purchase decision, say, robot, figure out how to do the task in sim, show us you doing it with a certain uh, graded reliability, and then make the purchase decision after it's already proven it out in sim. Uh, so you can spin up you know, Amazon cloud instances or, or whatever your preferred cloud computing application is uh, and have reasonable confidence that you're gonna get a good map from the simulated environment onto the real. <clears throat> so this was not done with RL, but this is a uh, example of a fully autonomous task uh, specified in about uh, three minutes using the hand controller that comes with the robot. So two waypoints, left-hand side, right-hand side, A and B, and a task specification that says move all the boxes that you see on the left-hand side over to the right-hand side. obviously slower than the person would do the task, and so the correct way to sort of think about this from a value proposition is what is the cost of the labor that is freed up by a person not having to do the task. Um, there was a deliberate choice in the video that we did with Ford uh, of why we showed people doing the picking tasks. Those are still hard. Uh, you know, there are a few manufacturers who are starting to do uh, freeform pick solutions, uh, but there's you know, relatively few of those on the market. And tasks like this are approachable and doable by the robot today. Uh, you know, this is, there's no cheating with this at all. This is the robot actually doing this job. So our entire premise is, you know, we're at historically low unemployment rates. It's very hard to hire people to do warehousing with this job generally. So you want them doing the, the tasks that are still hard for robots to do, that are uh, prone to injury, uh, and then can free up the uh, that can already be done with the robot.
and then uh, some gratuitous robot action. Uh, we have obviously multiples of these in our office, uh, so we wanted to see what they could do if they were doing a teamwork activity, and this was the outcome. The full clip of this is on our, our YouTube channel. Uh, in the interest of sure we have enough time to go ahead and skip over the rest of it. But uh, if you just search for Adobe Robotics on YouTube, uh, the entire history of our videos is there. Uh, so last slide, and then we can get on to uh, any questions you have. Uh, we want to emphasize that bipedal robots, uh, both from us and other manufacturers, are, are ready to work in human spaces today. This is not a science fiction project. Uh, you can actually call us and order a robot. Um, more generally, we want to encourage the automation community to think about the differentiation between tasks that really require hyper-specialization, of which there are obviously many, and tasks that you're better off with a general solution that can operate both indoors and outdoors. Uh, there are lots of different uh, ways to do legs. We're not, by, by any stretch of imagination, uh, the only company doing legs. Uh, and some of those will have differentiations, better or worse. Uh, moreover, there are other technologies that we would lump as general purpose and we encourage uh, looking at that. So things that we don't have any uh, active work in ourselves, but aerial drones can both work indoors and outdoors, right? So uh, as a parting message, you know, keep in mind there is a difference between purpose-built automation and more flexible stuff. We're obviously advocates of the flexible solution and um, we think bipeds are ready to get to work in human spaces. Thanks. Happy to take any questions. So the question was, how do we think about uh, customer ROI with respect to the pace of the robots themselves? Um, two ways to think about that. One is you're looking at the speed here in these videos of the prototype robot, not the finished hardware. Uh, but secondarily, pace in many cases is less important than say dollars per task completed. So if you had a very slow solution that was free, the ROI there is effectively infinite on a cost per task completed basis. Uh, and although we haven't publicly discussed the, the modeling that we have on the cost of the robots, um, I would say they are, they are already cost effective today uh, for the right customer at the current 
pacing and will get more so over time. Uh, yeah, so the question was sort of performance weight limit. Uh, so right now it's about a 20 kilogram weight limit, so 40 pounds, give or take. Uh, and other things that are sort of along that are battery life. Uh, battery life right now is about three hours, but we would emphasize that that is very much a design decision. Uh, and the way to think about that is if you're going for a long uh, backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail, how far can you hike? Well, the answer is how much food are you carrying? And the more food you carry, the less space you have for other stuff. So it's really you can load the robot up with batteries and get you know, multi-day operations on one battery charge. At that point, you're going to reduce the load capacity. So it's really a, a match of trying to find what is the payload you want the robot to be able to carry versus weight allocation. You know, interestingly enough, in the package space, you know, something like 95% of packages are under 5 kilograms. So we're almost certainly a higher load capacity than you need for most of the package flow right now. Other questions? Okay, thanks.